Hi, this is Michael from The Intersection. Thanks for joining us. Now, for each of our episodes here on The Intersection, we'll be following up the first segment with an interview with an expert on the topic. Our interview is with Professor Gary Foley, an activist, an academic, an actor. A government gear man from the mid-north coast of New South Wales, Gary Foley has been at the forefront of Indigenous activism since his involvement in the Black Power movement in the late 60s. It would take a long, long time to go through all the things he has done, but in short, he was one of the founders of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra in 1972, an early force behind the Aboriginal Legal Service, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, an actor in movies such as Backroads and Dogs in Space, and a tireless voice for Indigenous people in numerous forums. He's also an historian, and in recent years is Professor of History at Victoria University. Our interview is mainly concerned with the time in the mid-1980s when Gary was director of the Aboriginal Arts Board and his frontline activism in the bicentenary protests of 1988. Gary, you joined the Aboriginal Arts Board in 1983 following the election of the Hawke government. Can you tell us a bit of how the Arts Board was up till that time? Well, um, when you say I joined the Aboriginal Arts Board, I was press gang. Okay. into joining the Aboriginal Arts Board by my uh, one of my early mentors, Chika Dixon. Chika, uh, I'd rashly promised Chika a decade before when Chika was um, just a project officer with the Aboriginal Arts Board. And from the time um, Whitlam had created the Aboriginal Arts Board in 1973, Right up until 1983, the Aboriginal Arts Board administration had been run by non-Aboriginal people. And I said to Chika 10 years earlier when Chika used to complain to me about um, that situation, I said to him, used to say to him, don't worry, Fox, that was his nickname, and they didn't call him the Fox for nothing. I said, don't worry, Fox, one day you'll be the boss and I'll come in and watch your back. Uh, ten years later, a 1983 ticker rings me up and says, Hawks just appointed me chairman of the Aboriginal Arts Board. Remember the promise you made. And so, you know, I felt compelled. But it was it was an exciting time, you know. Um, um, ever since Whitlam had sold us out on his promise to deliver land rights, um, uh, the Aboriginal political movement um, was on a roll. We'd set up uh, uh, an Aboriginal information centre in London. We were spreading mm. propaganda through a network of uh, support groups throughout Europe. We were kicking a few goals. Um, and uh, we'd taken the fight right up to the Fraser government. So then along comes talk. Um, he appoints Chick as chairman of the Aboriginal Arts Board and I went in and because the Aboriginal Arts Board for the previous 10 years had been run by non-Aboriginal people, when I checked the books, I discovered that um, around 80% of Aboriginal Arts Board money for the previous 10 years had been going to non-Aboriginal people. And so Ticker and I introduced a, a new a new policy immediately that uh, 
no non-Aboriginal people would be funded while we were running the board. Um, and that was a rule we strictly adhered to, much to the shock and horror of some, but it proved a very effective um, means of, well, for a start, doubling the amount of, more than doubling the amount of money available to Aboriginal artists and performers. Mm. And so um, Kicker and I had very uh, strong political opinions about who should be funded and who shouldn't, I suppose, like any crew of yep. people of an opposing position now. Well, they had been for the previous 10 years, and they determined where the money went. It was our turn. That, that's amazing that so much of the funding had previously been going to non-Aboriginal activities. Can you recall what some of those were, like who, what's where the, some of that funding went to? To all manner of um, scam artists. Well, you know, I'm being mm. a bit, I'm probably being a bit nasty, but I mean, uh, they were going to non-Aboriginal companies that. Uh, maybe employed a few token Aboriginal people to okay. sit near the door and make things look good. But um, as with all federal government money since Whitlam, the majority of all of that money goes to non-Aboriginal people to this day. And I'm not talking about the Arts Board now, I'm talking about Aboriginal affairs generally. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one day Australians ought to wake up and ask questions about that. But, okay. you know, the, all that uh, means is that Aboriginal people, the vast black underclass remains in pretty much the same situation they were up to 50 years ago. You know, thing, nothing changes. Well, it's a lot to take on board. Um, <laughs> but back to... Um, at the time yourself and Chica took over yep. the agency, I know at the time you redirected where some of the funding was going to, made it a bit more broad-based across the arts. Well, we um, began to fund people like Tracy Moffat. I mean, you know, Tracy Moffat, one of the biggest artists in the world yep. nowadays, you know, fated in New York. Richard Bell, um, you know, just um, had a massively successful uh, stay in Germany at, uh, the Republica arts event over there. He opens at the Tate next month. You know, a lot of the people who we supported back then, um, some of them have gone on to uh, international recognition, you know, yeah. and we, Kicker and I, were the first to not only um, know and recognize that they were out there in our communities, but were able to channel resources for them to help kick them off, you know? Well, um, no fixed address, so we've played a little earlier in the program. I know received a Arts Board grant to help them get overseas. Did you get any resistance from funding a young rock band? Um, not in terms of no fixed. I mean, no fixed were kicking goals themselves mm, at yeah. the time we came into to Portham, and I'd known the boys from Adelaide from um, many years before. So I was familiar with them, familiar with bands like Coloured Stone, 
uh, you know, one of the contemporaries of um, Nofik. Yep. And, um, you know, music, both Checker and I recognised that, you know, the art was more than just, you know, somebody painting a picture, that the uh, arts and especially artistic endeavours that were helping to get uh, a particular message across to the broader Australian community about the situation that Aboriginal people were in and no fix fit that bill perfectly, you know, and they were, it was the right time for them, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. I find it interesting because you must have been one of the only um, government-supported agencies in the 80s that actually were helping fund rock music, basically, or contemporary music, because it wasn't happening in a lot of other areas. Well, I mean, the Australia Council was a strange place for a bloke like me at that point in my life. I mean, you know, now that I look back on it 40-whatever years later, I think to myself, gee, I don't know how they let us get away with a lot of the stuff we did, you know. Checker and I... uh, Checker was a charmer, so he could go into the Australia Council meetings and charm all these highfalutin, high art sort of types that were the rest of the Australia Council at that time. And um, the only two boards in the Australia Council at that point that weren't uh, funding things like the opera and that was the Community Arts Board and the Aboriginal Arts Board. Yeah. And my old mate, John O'Hawks, was the director of the Aboriginal Arts Board, uh, the Community Arts Board. And so he and I, uh, on the administration side, were considered the enfant terribles of the Australia Council. But, um, you know, whilst we were delivering, uh, nobody could interfere with us. Chica had a lot of um, control over you know, what we did so that we were fit. We were by far the most independent of all of the, you know, highfalutin boards of the Australia Council. And most forward-thinking in a lot of ways as well. I think that's because, you know, both John O'Hawks and I were younger than a lot of the, you know, uh, some of the others in the, the Australia Council and John O'Hawks had come out of the, um, you know, he was one of the founders of Circus Oz years before, so um, we were probably considerably more left-leaning than um, other uh, people in the Australia Council. But then, having said that, you know, we did... Donald Horn was the chair of the Australia Council at one point when I first went there, I think, and he was replaced by Timothy Pascoe, who who, despite his bow ties and his fancy way of talking, was very supportive of what we were doing, luckily, you know, which is probably another reason why we were able to do some of the things we did. Gary, you've written extensively about the Hawke government's failure to legislate for land rights, as they had promised to do in the 1983 election. For any of our listeners who are maybe not fully aware of that story. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Well, a decade earlier, in 1973, uh, Gough Whitlam had become Prime Minister 
um, loudly announcing in his policy speech that his government would deliver uh, Aboriginal land rights. It only took six months for Whitlam to renege on that um, policy uh, when he realised what he was up against. And so land rights was off the table politically for another 10 years. Then in the lead up to the 83 election in which Hawke got in, Hawke loudly proclaimed to all and sundry that his government would deliver national uniform land rights legislation regardless of what opposition from the state they would legislate to bring that about immediately well you know again it only took about nine months and uh, bob hawke got pressured by the then corrupt president of the alp mr brian burke and i'm not accusing him you know loosely he went to well, jail for yeah, corruption exactly. more than once and at the time, though, as the Hawke government, he was the national president of the ALP and one of the power brokers in the ALP because of the vast amount of money he was bringing into the party, especially from contributions from the corrupt property developers in Western Australia and the mining industry. And, and Brian Burke was in the pocket of the mining industry. And Brian Burke said to Bob Hawke, there's no way you can you you know you can go ahead with this land rights for Aborigines nonsense, and so Hawke reneged. Which then, by the time Hawke reneged on his promise, my three-year term at the Aboriginal Arts Board was, was coming up. The other thing that Chicker and I did when we went in, we told people we were only staying for one term, because uh, we both believed that if we stayed any longer within uh, your bureaucracy, it would invariably and inevitably corrupt us. And so we, to ensure that everybody kept us to our word, we let people know before we went in, that's what we were going to do, and that's what we did. And so by the time I left the Aboriginal Arts Board, um, I became involved in the creation of the, the body that, the fight politically to the Hawke government, that was the National Aboriginal Islander Health Organisation. Mm. And so for the next uh, few years or so, um, we saw as a great opportunity coming up uh, the bicentennial, you know, because mm. uh, that was a perfect target for us to politically agitate around and with luck to... Um, fuck up the great party that Bob Hawke was hoping to have with him as the central focal point, you know? So so Aboriginal people began organising in advance of the Bicentennial. And the Bicentennial Committee came up with the perfect uh, thing for us. They declared that 1988 would be the great celebration of the nation which enabled some of our which to come up with the counter um, proposition that it was the great masturbation of the nation. <laughs> As it <laughs> which, was. Which worked perfectly, you know. It certainly did, and that, that term certainly caught on at the time. So on January 26, 1988, I was at the rally in Hyde Park along with 40,000 other people, and you were the MC that day, of course, 
And that day changed me as a 20-year-old white kid at the time. I felt for the first time I, I got a glimpse of an Australia that would be a much better place and could be a much better place than the one that I'd been brought up in. I'm just curious, what are your memories of that day particularly and of the week before when so many Aboriginal people came to Sydney? Well, I mean, it was uh, it was uh, historic in the sense that, you know, well, many senses, but one of the senses that was historic that made it historic was the largest gathering of Aboriginal people in Australia in Australian history. In the 80,000-year history of Australia, that was by far the biggest single gathering of Aboriginal people. And um, it was a powerful feeling, you know, not just for 40,000 people like you who were there, but for us as well, you know. Uh, it was <laughs> it was just lucky on the day that we didn't realise that the next 40 years would be uh, would be caught up in history wars and culture wars yeah. and Pauline Hanson and the whole sort of counter effect then of the positivity of that single day in 88. Yeah, which it certainly was, yeah. I did some study on the Bicentennial not that long ago and looking at the international press from that time, if they covered it at all, what they wanted to know about was Indigenous Australia. They they had very little interest in the celebratory aspect of it. Absolutely, which was, you know, completely the opposite of what Bob Hawke had been hoping for. You know, he thought he was uh, going to be there sitting at the centre along with Carlton Dyer, the central focal point of the day. Um, and the New York Times reported on page two and virtually all of their report at the time when, you know, back then when newspapers were important, the New York Times was the most important paper in the world. It gave a huge account on page two and virtually all of it was about um, what we did rather than what the rest of Australia did. And that was what we were trying to do on the day get our message across. We were hoping to get a message across to all Australians, but we hadn't sort of realised that it'd have, it would have the impact it did in various other parts of the world, you know, which um, once again um, demonstrated as the Aboriginal Embassy had 10 years earlier that Aboriginal political strategists have been very effective in getting their message across. The only trouble is <laughs> we've been getting our message across for most of my life and for a long time before, but there still remains considerable resistance to um, our basic um, long-term aim, you know. In some ways, answered this question already, but in terms of with so many years since then, would you still look on the protest of that period of being successful in terms of getting the reality of Indigenous Australia out to the world and also domestically to get it to a lot more people, such as myself at the time? Would you still see that as a successful um, protest? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, each of our successful, you know, some more than others, uh, endeavours over the years 
have um, played a, an important role in um, making a new each new generation. Every time, you know, it's almost generational each time. We reach a new generation each time. And we reach a significant part of each Australian generation each time, you know. But, um, and, you know, one of the most successful things of all time was the 1967 referendum. If one is to judge success by the fact that it's the biggest yes vote in Australian history in excess of 90% of the Australian people, a clear and strong expression uh, on the part of the vast majority of Australians uh, in a referendum. And what did it change? Nothing. Because politicians chose to sit on their hands and ignore it for the first six years after the referendum. So not only did the, the most effective thing we've ever done, the 67 referendum, which, which illustrated at that moment in Australian history, there was a vast reservoir of goodwill towards Aboriginal people on the part mm. of the Australian people. And yet that, even that was not sufficient to move corrupt politicians off their asses to actually do something about the expressed wishes of their own constituency, the Australian people. <laughs> well, Gary, you've obviously moved into academia. You're professor at Victoria University. Um, Indeed, I have. I'm, um, I'm the oldest still teaching professor at Victoria Uni, <laughs> and I teach history to... Um, uh, you know, and one of the reasons I'm still doing it, I enjoy teaching because unlike at Melbourne University, University of Melbourne, where I used to teach and my old alma mater, um, when I was teaching at Melbourne Uni, I was teaching the children of the rich and the oligarchs of Asia and wherever. Whereas in at Victoria University, I've got a different student demographic. A lot of asylum seekers, a lot of refugees, uh, working class uh, white Australians, and a small smattering of Aboriginal people. And I find um, that sort of student demographic much more interesting and challenging and and fruitful to be working with. So just for our Sydney listeners, Victoria University's in Footscray, is it? Is that your main campus? In, indeed it is. So, um, and, and so I, in the west of Melbourne. And to all those Sydney people, I'd, I'd point out that um, <laughs> I don't think it's a great secret that I'm not a big fan of Sydney. I lived there <laughs> many, many years ago, and uh, I escaped to the last isolated outpost of civilization on mainland Australia, a place called Melbourne. <laughs> you should come and visit. <laughs> so, so let's have a bit of Melbourne I, versus Sydney. <laughs> I've been here for 50 years, mate. You know, I've, I've sort of been accepted in. You know, I've, I've the, the Rangeri traditional owners mm. down here have put up with me for 50 years, making trouble on their land, and they've been um, very patient uh, and very hospitable. Me. Well, thank you. 
Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> well, I didn't expect the Sydney versus Melbourne debate to come on today, but you make a good point. <laughs> you gave me the opportunity. I know. I'm, I know. I'm sorry, folks. I'm sorry yeah, that's, about that. That's all right. But I, I'm sure I recall you at a few gigs in Sydney in the mid '80s. Um, so you've always been a music fan. It's and I mean, you appeared on stage with the Clash. So uh, you, oh, indeed, I did at the Capitol uh, Theatre there in Sydney. I think it was. And that was an amazing crowd too of Sydney people. But they the crowd that turned up at the Clash concert weren't necessarily the people I had had problems with in Sydney years before. Sure. Because uh, the people who I had problems with years before in Sydney wore uniforms and they were yep. particularly nasty and wretched. Yep. Well, Professor Gary Foley, this has been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time and for, well, just giving us your wealth of information. Thank you, folks, and my warm regards to all you Sydney folk up there. Great. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The Intersection. My name is Michael Fisher, production by Rob Marchenberg. We'd like to give special thanks to Eastside Radio, 89.7 FM, and don't forget to follow The Intersection on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just search The Intersection underscore Eastside FM. The Intersection was recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty never ceded.